0: welcome to bci cattle chat i'm brad white joined today by dr dustin pendle dr bob larson dr philip lancaster and dr brian lubers good morning guys
1: hey good morning
0: good morning brad Morning. Morning. morning brad Happy to have you with us and happy to have you guys with us listening as well as always if you have questions comments things you want us to talk about or if you'd like to get our weekly email newsletter you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu one of the cool things that we've been doing in that weekly newsletter is we've been putting in some graphs that some of our students have generated looking at some of the data and they've really come up with some great ones lately so if you get a chance you can take a look at those you can sign up for that this comes in your email weekly Um, We're happy to have some of those topics, and we've got some listener questions that have come in, but today we're going to talk a a little bit about crossbreeding and small herds, we'll talk about BRD, talk about a question that faces most of us at this time of year, when should I start feeding hay versus keep grazing, and Philip and and Bob have some really good thoughts on that, and then Dustin's going to touch on a little bit at the end on some, what does it mean for low carbon meat? Before we get into that, it's getting to that time of year. It's nearly Christmas. And I know, Bob, your annual Christmas request that Santa has yet to bring you Mm -hmm. a drone. Mm
1: -hmm. Every year I hear
0: you talk, you say, I want a drone. But i I, it's going to be this year. So it might be this year. What are you going to use that drone for?
1: You know, I I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. One is that I can see is checking water sources. There's pastures where, you know, uh, you got multiple water sources, you know, either a, a windmill tank or or a groundwater tank something like that and i think you know that, that that's i think that's an easy one i can come up with others but i think that's an easy one checking water sources so yeah uh, yeah i'm i'm talking metaphorically like my parents and that kind of stuff
0: so he's gonna he's gonna check other people's water sources that's his new water. business
2: yeah uh, bob's man.
1: drones <laughs> bob's drones i'll check your water
2: i mean i think you could do something along the same lines if you've got really large pastures really large ranch you could use it to locate the cows before you spend a lot of time traversing over the ranch to find them to check on them mm-hmm. and save a lot of time and, and effort there
1: and and again i'm picturing you know some of our pretty wide open pastures we've also got some pretty heavily wood pastures uh, i don't think my drone's going to work very darn well there, finding cows or anything unless i can learn to fly it around the trees and that may that may be an adventure
0: I'm picturing the drones that our kids got for Christmas a couple years ago, and they were the cheaper drones, and we went out on Christmas Day, which here in Kansas, windy, and that thing (laughs) went up in the air for about 15 seconds. (laughs) They're not wind hardy. Right? So I, I think you'd have to, probably there's better ones than those, but yeah, we'll, we'll see, Bob. We'll all chip in and, and go to Walmart and see what they have on the shelf that we can get for you this year to go check people's waters. So what, one of the things that uh, is a relatively frequent question and, and we talk about, um, I think it is, you think about crossbreeding and you get a big herd, you have lots of different opportunities to bring in different bulls, different genetics, but I want to ask you guys, how do I not really into the principles, but how would I implement that? And let me give you a scenario. I've got a herd with one or two bulls, right? So I've got enough cows to go with it. How do I implement that crossbreeding plan to really get the benefits of crossbreeding, knowing I don't have a lot of genetic choices there?
1: I, you know, that's a very good question, because I really do like my crossbred cows. Uh, Some of the advantages of crossbred cows are better calf viability, better rigor of the calves, a little better growth, um, those types of things. So I really do like crossbred cows, but when you only have, you know, one or two bulls, it's hard to manage that. But one way that's that people have talked about for years is, is kind of switching back between breeds. So if I'm going to keep a bull for two or three, four years, you know, go with breed a, and then the next time I need to buy a bull, buy a different breed of bulls. And then over the generations and I have a, a, planned and but not perfect crossbreeding system but that works pretty decently
2: Mm -hmm. and that that gets you a fair amount of the heterosis that's that's available or the maximum heterosis you know if we do the look at the different types of crossbreeding systems the maximum heterosis is crossbred cows on a terminal sire bull to get both maximum on the cows and then on the calves and so in a small herd that's really tough to do but I think one way you could do that would be using AI as a tool to bring different genetics in and create those crossbred cows within your own herd, and then using it, having a terminal sire around to to breed the rest of the cows and natural service.
1: Yeah, I think that can work pretty well. It does take a little more management and you got to have a high fertility herd, you know, so you got to do a lot of things well, but I think that is a great way to do it. The one other way that I I do also think that that can work really well is to use composites, and and those are becoming more popular. Uh, you know, basically, kind of planned crossbreeds of you know a couple of breeds, and then you basically treat them like a purebred uh, on my operation if I'm a buyer of those. So you know, there's there's lots of them out there. The you know, so using- crosses, rank you know, Angus, Red Angus, you know, Red Angus, uh, Seminole cross, lots of different crosses that make for a nice composite.
0: Bob, you're using the word composite, and Philip said you should crossbreed and create your own cows. Are those different, or are you guys talking about the same thing and just using different words?
1: Um, They're they're a little bit different. So a composite, uh, maybe the most famous composite is Brangus. So somebody has to do the work of taking purebred Angus and purebred Brahmans and creating the, the original Brangus. But then once you buy a Brangus animal, basically you treat them like a purebred, and you just breed them to other Brangus and so, from a management standpoint, composites like that are quite simple to use. I just use that composite, and I get the, most of the advantage of crossbreeding. With crossbreeding, I'm using two full, you know, purebred breeds. You know, Angus, Hereford, Charolais, Simmental. Some, you know, some, and then I'm crossing those two breeds, and now I'm taking the um, management cost and advantage of creating those. So, yeah, I'm I'm calling them slightly different things. It's it's. it's you get benefits from both ways of doing it.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, a composite has a established percentage of each of the different breeds in it, and it's consistent from each generation to generation. And, and that creates a lot of different herds to put that together. If you're a small producer, building your own composite's not going to be very feasible. Um, so buying them from somebody else and then you can just use them as a straight bread in your operation works fairly well.
0: But you get a lot of the advantages from at least crossbreeding, even though it's not as stable on your operation if you create those crossbred cows and then you rotate your bulls. So I think mm-hmm. figure out what works for you, but don't leave crossbreeding on the table. This is a topic that that we have all talked to people about, that it's easy to get into this is what I've done before, this is the type of bulls I get, and the, I save these heifers. And all of a sudden, I'm not purebred, but I have the genetics of close to a purebred operation as far as homogeneity or as far as similarity to each other. So I think that's a, I think that's a good topic. The other topic that I, that I wanted to hit on, and, and Brian, I'm going to ask you, because this is, this is something as we think about bovine respiratory disease or pneumonia in calves post-weaning, most times if we wean the calves on the ranch we're taking care of them we're starting them on a ration you may not uh, expect to see a lot of BRD but sometimes you can what what might we see in some of those cases
3: yeah so I, I would I would say if you do that frequently enough where you're weaning on the farm and you're keeping those calves around for a while you will you will see some eventually it's it's not what we um, talk about with kind of the traditional BRD slash shipping fear, which is associated to transport, and then you see it in a either in the stalker yard or the feed yard, wherever they went to. Um, but it, but as far as the disease process itself goes, is it's it's a similar process, right? And so um, with BRD in general, I'll I'll speak kind of generally that you know BRD is usually starts because the calves experience some sort of stress event. And so um, we, we do consider weaning a stress event, uh, which then causes the, the calves to uh, their immune system isn't as strong. And if they're in a group, uh, we may see movement of a virus or uh, bacteria within the group. Um, and we may see a few cases of BRD. And so um, I think you asked what does what does that look like? It, it looks like BRD. So um, calves will
0: <laughs> very descriptive. Oh, so, right. so BRD yeah. looks like BRD. Is BRD saying, looks Brian. like BRD. Yeah. That's what Good I'm saying. Call. yep Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, you know, and but like you said, it's it if it's not a a usual event on your operation, and and probably typically isn't on a cow calf operation. Um, you know, things you would look for. You look for calves that are not eating. Uh, they may not be staying with the group you may see them back um, if you're feeding it a lot you know they may not come up to the bunk if you identify those kind of general signs you know they have their head down you may see more nasal discharge uh, they may be breathing heavier um, the problem with brd is it's it it's pretty nonspecific. meaning we see these signs but we can see those signs with a lot of other diseases too and so Um, But once you once you identify an animal that that kind of has those, um, then it's probably worth a closer examination. So we would use temperature, uh, we may use uh, listening to the lungs through a stethoscope uh, to help us Define that yes, this calf that's not eating and, and doesn't look well and maybe has some discharge. Um, yes, he does have a fever. Yes, he does have some lung sounds that we would associate with uh, BRD, and and it's probably at that point worth uh, administering treatment to that animal. What so but, what you Brian? Know, I, I want to follow whole,
0: up on your yeah. on your on your finding those because I think this is a great reason to have a water tank that you must fill with a hose, and my rationale is. You have to stand there while it's filling and watch the calves for a little bit. And what you're looking for is somebody just a little off, right? They're they're maybe not coming up to feed. They don't. We think about somebody says pneumonia. You go, oh, they're coughing. They're snot coming out. There's all these other things. Usually not early. Not when you can make the biggest difference. It is their head might be down. They might go to. And I've seen calves that the social behavior is so strong, right? They go to the bunk with everybody else. And if you're standing there filling the water tank, you notice, well, that calf's not eating. And personally, I have to write that number down and go, well, I'm going to see what he looks like tonight or tomorrow before I make a decision.
3: Yep. That's right. And I'll, I'll emphasize what you said that the earlier, and it's a hard disease to detect. We, we've all been involved in research that shows we're not very good as humans at picking up BRD, especially in those early stages. And so yeah, not like feeding animals and then driving off and not seeing who comes to eat and who doesn't. Like put a put a gate where you have to get out of the truck and it delays you a little bit. So you can see the other really do not buying into
0: my water hose idea.
3: Your water hose fine is fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Um but is not as specific like if you're if you're feeding in a bunk, typically they get hungry and they'll come up to the bunk quickly but water is they'll consume through unless you unless you empty the tank dry there they probably won't just come right up to the water the other big thing we emphasize especially in the feed yard is getting everybody up so if you're and making a move around because that's one of the ways you can start to pick up those subtle signs of brd so you know if they're in a lot and you feed and there's a couple laying down it's it's probably you know from a treating BRD effectively standpoint, it's probably worth your time to go up and make them walk around and see if it's, they're just laying down because they're comfortable or they're laying down because they don't feel well and, and they need some therapy. And the last thing I'd say, Brad, about BRD, especially for situations where it's not a common event, which we hope it's not, is I, I really encourage if if it's something you you haven't seen a lot, work with a veterinarian and, and develop a a protocol for identifying these cases so that it's consistent because that's the other big challenge is being consistent in your diagnosis really helps with determining things like treatment outcomes. Um, And then if you do have a mortality event, um, doing a necropsy to really determine, yes, that was BRD or it was something else that looked like BRD.
0: Yeah. Excellent, Brian. So I think spend a few minutes and watch those calves, because it's easy to get in the habit of, I'm throwing feed over the fence and getting out of there as fast as I can, but spend a, spend a couple minutes when you can to watch that. The other thing to think about, and, and as we, we've we got the calves weaned, we've got the cows, they're out grazing, we maybe haven't started feeding hay yet. And Philip, I wanted to pose this to you and, and also get Dustin's input from the econ side. Um, when I'm thinking about, okay, it might be about time to start feeding hay, but I see there's a cost on each bale of hay, and I'd like to prolong this grazing as long as I can. How do I make the decision when I need to start feeding hay?
2: Brad, I think one of the number one things is based on when those cows are going to start calving, which tells you where they are in the stage of gestation, And so we know that as those cows move from the second trimester to the third trimester, the, the, the energy and protein requirements for that cow start to increase a lot because that, that's when most of the fetal growth actually happens. And so there's a large increase in nutrient requirements there in the last trimester. And so if I'm grazing, depends on what I'm grazing, but if I'm grazing, let's say some dormant um, native grass pastures, When I start to get into that last trimester, that forage, even with a protein supplement is not going to meet her nutritional requirements. And so I'm going to have to give her something that's better quality, or I'm going to have to increase the the supplement and and get some energy supplement into her, not just protein supplement.
1: So what I'm hearing you say is like around, around Manhattan, we've got a lot of standing dormant native Grange. And if she's mid gestation, a little protein supplements probably going to provide all she needs, but if she's going to calve in two months, and that calf is really growing in cider, what was fine for a different herd isn't going to be fine for me. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, exactly. It's it's the stage of where they're at in that gestation period that really makes a difference on whether that standing forage will meet their requirements or not.
1: All right. So then I'm going to throw it back at you with, well, what about other types of forage? What if you've got somebody with fescue or, you know, something like that?
2: Uh, so, if, so if you've got a cool season forage, especially fescue, fescue is it tends to, even as long as the temperatures are above freezing, it tends to grow a little bit. And it stays green, especially down in, if you've got, if you let it stockpile, say in the fall, and you've got it, um, a mat of forage there, down underneath, it'll still be green. It may be brown on top, but down underneath, it'll still be green a lot of times. And so it's still got good protein. It's still got uh, good digestibility. And so if you've got enough of it out there, you can still meet the nutritional requirements of those cows um, as long as there's enough of it for them to consume, even even going into late gestation. Dustin,
0: what about the economic parts? That is, we think about the cost or the cost benefit of this scenario. How does that play into this decision?
4: Yeah, I mean, when you guys were talking about that, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, what are the costs associated with starting to feed hay now versus continue grazing? I mean, think about costs, uh, including your nutritional, uh, impacts as well. And so I guess what I'm just saying is think about, cause we've talked about for the last what, two weeks in our podcasts, uh, that the can't, the, the members of KFMA Kansas Farm Manager Association, looking at that data of those cow-calf operations, the most profitable operations tend to have the smaller or the lowest, uh, non-pasture feed expenses. However, those high profit operations tend to have a higher pasture cost compared to your low, low profit producers. And so what's happening is those producers, I think, are making some kind of trade-off between maybe running the cows a little longer on pasture or grazing them versus uh, maybe bringing them off the pasture and start feeding them hay. So those are some things that I think you just got to think about, maybe you sit down and you just pencil out, uh, pencil out the numbers, work through the math. And we will, in our show notes, we'll put a link to uh, a, a website that has a feed cost calculator so they can actually work through some of those some of those numbers themselves.
1: All right. So I'm going to throw in, maybe it's on the same topic. Maybe it's a little bit different. So I'm, start, I'm thinking of calving season now. And I'm thinking about the type of environment that I want calves to calve in. And I don't want them to calve in a dry lot. I'd really like to get them out on a pasture. And if I have to carry feed out there, that's fine. So here, I'm going to ask you, Philip. It makes me think, though... If I graze so maybe I'll feed in the dry lot for a while, hey, but then come February, March, April, I put them out on on a on pasture. Uh, I'll probably have to supplement them, yes, but am I doing anything negatively to that pasture's growth come summertime by doing that because I really want to get my calves to be calved out on a pasture, not in a dry lot?
2: Well, you could um, depends on how you you manage it a um, couple of things if you concentrate all your feeding in one area then you have really damaged that area and it's probably going to be all weeds come summertime but the damaged area is relatively small but if you spread it out and really spread it out across the pasture you won't have very much damage at all to as long as as far foot traffic and mud and and really killing things out
1: so you're saying Um, like if i'm going to unroll hay or something like that just do it a different place every time i take hay out there as far apart as i can get them
2: yeah, move, move it around. It also you know, moves the manure and the nutrients around too that helps spread that out um, and get better utilization of that. Um, but then you probably want to think about pulling them off a little early because if you really grub that down and that new grass really starts to get green and they eat off of those leaves really early, that's going to stunt the growth of that grass for the rest of the growing season.
1: So if I turn cows out to calve on a pasture, I can't just leave them on that pasture all the way through the summer. I'm going to have to give that pasture some rest early in the early in the summer. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. If you, if you can, I know that that becomes difficult. Some pasture has to get grazed there early on um, but rotating them around so that each area can get some rest early on is really important.
0: Excellent. Thank you guys for that. I think great answers to both those questions and that leads us to our BCI cattle chat checklist for this week. Our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist this week are the considerations for when I should start feeding hay versus continuing to graze.
2: Number five, understand the impact on spring grazing.
4: Number four, compare the benefits and costs of meeting the nutrition through standing forage versus hay.
1: Number three, consider the type of forage such as cool season or warm season and the
3: nutrition those types of forages provide. Number two, evaluate the amount of forage available.
2: And number one, Know the production stage of the cows and the nutritional requirements of those cows.
0: And that's our BCI Cattle Chat checklist for this week. Dustin, I wanted to follow up at least briefly. I know you mentioned a story. You saw there's a new low-carbon meat coming. What does that mean?
4: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I did see an article that talked about low-carbon beef. And so this is a USDA Ag Marketing Service Uh Process verified program that's called low carbon beef, and so it's a it it is a certification program uh, that raises cattle with reduced greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I don't know a lot of the details, uh, but it it did note the article noted that cattle must show at least ten percent lower greenhouse gas emissions than the industry standard, Uh, and they did talk about maybe consumers willing to pay. They compared it like to organic. As an example, or grass-fed, and so I think that's probably what they're probably trying to uh, try to get some premiums for those individuals who you know care about the uh, or you know who want to try to reduce the carbon footprint.
3: Yeah, I saw I saw a similar article, and they didn't have details on a. You know, it looks like it's going to be a, a labeling, right? So it'll fit in with other USDA labeling, but it looks like they they give you scores based on um, the the feed greenhouse gas emissions the fuel uh, the cattle themselves um, there there's several categories that go across to help score it but I mean it's basically going to add another another labeling option for consumers who who would prefer to purchase those products
0: yeah so that carbon footprint is based on a variety of sources. It's not just the meat. It's not that the meat itself is different, but it's how it's raised, how it was processed, what they were fed, how long those those cattle were live, the efficiency of that process. Is that what you're saying, Dustin Brian?
4: Yeah, I believe there was like 20 different criteria that they used, like as Brian said, the feeds and the fuels and the fertilizers and et cetera to come I think, up with
0: keep an eye on. And, and a lot of the sustainability metrics are, are coming back to being driven by efficiency. And as we've talked many times, efficiency of the operation is, is key for several other aspects, including economic health. So it's important to, to be sure that we can get there. So we appreciated your input on that and appreciated you guys' input on these other topics as we talked about the, the different aspects. And certainly we'll continue to follow up on Uh, the nutrition as well as some of the crossbreeding topics that that were mentioned today as always we've enjoyed having you with us today and if you have any questions comments topics you'd like us to talk about send us an email at bci at ksu.edu